Thank you very much. That's my secretary. You can go home now. Um, not you, the secretary. Okay, the backstory. We're in John chapter, the end of chapter six. We're about roughly six months from the crucifixion toward the end of his ministry. Uh, John doesn't give as much detail as the others do about his uh, ministry, especially this last six months. Um, he's more interested in the, the cross and, what, and that whole week. But in any case, so we covered last week the surprising way that people get saved, and it involves God drawing people. It involves God choosing people before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. It involves God um, predestining people. It involves um, all of those things. So look at, look at your um, text here. Um, let's see, I don't have it there, so let me find it here. Look at chapter 6, just covering a few verses to, um, to review. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. Okay, we'll see how that is in an hour when you're all dozing. Those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. Okay, I saw that. Good. Okay, look at verse 30, John 6, verse 37. He's talking about people, and he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. How many of the ones that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him? Most? Every single one of them. So if you came to Jesus, that means that eons ago, I, don't ask me, I don't understand it, but I'm telling you, it's in the Bible. God, the Father, gave you and I and her and him and everybody that believes to Jesus. That's what it says. So the question is, how many of those will Jesus lose where people had salvation and then they lost it? Verse 39 answers that question. So 37 says, all the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive them away. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. That's This is the will of God, the Father who sent Jesus, that I shall lose only 13%. Oh, no, that's not what it says. How many? None. None. If you're truly saved, he's got you, right? And... Um, there's no possible way you can be lost. I shall lose none that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Um, let's see. Now go over to verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless something happens. Unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. The reason for that is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, which says unbelievers are spiritually not sick not damaged, dead in our trespasses and sins. You can look it up later, Ephesians 2, verse 1, dead. Dead people don't come to Jesus unless they're born again, unless they're drawn by the Father, unless they've been chosen. Do I understand this? No. Do I believe it? Absolutely. Um, this whole idea of us being chosen is what's called reformed theology. Some call it Calvinism, although a lot of Reformed people don't agree with everything Calvin said, me being one of them. However, I got to say this. I meant to say it last week and beat myself up all week that I forgot. This is not an essential doctrine. If you don't believe this, that's fine. 
but you're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Just a joke. If you don't believe this, it's not an essential. It's an essential that you believe the Bible's God's word, that Jesus was truly God and fully man, that he paid for our sins on the cross, died and rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. These are Christian essentials. Salvation is by grace through faith. That's an essential. If you don't believe those, we need to talk. That's important. You don't believe you were chosen before the foundation of the world. It's important. It's not an essential. I wanted to make sure I said that. Belief requires God enabling us, calling us, drawing us, choosing us. Uh, he gives us to the Son as gifts. Some of us are better gifts than others, right? But uh, uh, let's see. Uh, verse 45 says, all those that are believers will be taught by God himself. They will all be taught by God. Sort of the same thing as being drawn, being chosen. He illumines our minds. He wakes us up, so to speak. Um, I won't go into that analogy again. Uh, Philippians 1.29 says that to you, uh, it has been granted, those of you who believe, it's been granted for you to believe in the Lord Jesus. That sounds like something he, he's doing all of it to me. But tonight, um, uh, we also talked about last week that you can't lose your salvation, eternal security. But there's always an asterisk there because everybody knows someone. We called him Harold last week. Harold over here used to go to church, used to be a Christian. 15 years, he was an, an elder in the church. He taught Bible study. Now he doesn't believe. Okay, so there's only two possibilities. He um, is going to go to hell or he's going to go to heaven. The question is, which is it? And we can't say definitively until Harold passes away. Because even in his dying breath, if he repents and God sees the sincerity and he says, I'm so sorry, I left you, Jesus, and I left the church. And I do believe God knows his heart. And if that's sincere, Harold will be reinstated and go to heaven. In that case, God convicted him because he was his from the foundation of the world. The other possibility is, unfortunately, there's people like Harold who have unbelief their whole life and they pass away in unbelief. Okay. That person, if you die in unbelief, the Bible says you're judged according to your sins. And the biggest sin being that you rejected the Savior, the one Savior. So was that person saved because he did go to church and he died an unbeliever? According to verse 39, if he doesn't lose any, he has to have been unsaved. But he seemed saved. I understand. He had a said faith rather than a real faith. He said all the right things, acted like he was saved. He was never really saved. Um, but there is the human side of all this. Keep, on, keep in mind, the book of John goes back and forth, human side, divine side. This is all the divine side. God chose us. He drew us. He calls us. He holds us in his hand, John 10. No one can snatch them out of his hand. Did someone snatch Harold out of his hand? Then that verse would be wrong too, if Harold was a believer. But until a person dies, no matter how bad they've gone off the deep end, you never know. God may draw them back right? So, and we can't see who's saved and who's not anyway. Um, let's see, we talked about that. Um, boy, that verse, Acts 
1348 is so convincing to me. Um, but let's not go there now because we went there last week. I want to get to the other end of all this, which is human responsibility. Okay. Um, although all of what I just said is true biblically, there is still a responsibility to you to hear the call, come to Jesus, repent of your sin, and here it comes, believe and receive the gift, right? Receiving is the proper response when someone gives you a gift. If you give me a new car, but I never go down to the dealership and pick it up and get the keys, it isn't my car yet. So the human response is believing and coming to Jesus. That's the human side, if you will. Um, I forgot to mention, this is back to the other side, Romans chapter 3 says that the total number of people that seek God, the total number of people that do good on their own is zero. No one seeks God. No one does good. Again, that fits right in with we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 12 says that even your faith is a gift. And to each one is given a measure of faith. We, the human side of that, we have to exercise our faith, right? And the more we exercise it and act, step out in faith, the more he grows our faith, if you will. Um, so let's see. Um, God wants us to come to him, to repent. We're ordered to do so. And God holds each one responsible to respond to the gift he's given. If you understand the, what salvation is and the unbelievable gift that it is, then you understand that it is a no-brainer to say yes to it. I give God all my guilt and all my sin and all my shame, and he gives me his righteous record before God, eternal life, the Holy Spirit living in me, forgiveness, peace like I've never known before. Only a fool would turn that offer down. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, this is the human side, that's in there so that murderers will hear that and say, well, it does say whosoever, and I do feel like I need to repent. Whosoever, that's in there because Christianity, like Judaism, is primarily Jewish. Whosoever is for the Irish, the Japanese, the South Americans, and even Italians like me, that we can come to him. Whosoever. Chuck Missler used to say that when you get to heaven, on the outside of the door as you're walking in to the marriage supper of the Lamb, it says whosoever believes may enter. And you think, whosoever, I believed, I'm coming in. And then on the other side of the door, when you get in, you turn around and it says, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. It's possible um, that there's a third position. Position number one, we haven't talked a lot about, uh, Jacobus Arminius is a guy that came up with Arminianism, not the nationality. This is a Christian philosophy that predestination is wrong. And what really happens, it's not wrong, but it's wrongly interpreted. Arminianism teaches, listen, that God did choose you, 
But the basis on which he chose each one of us was that since God can look down the corridor of time and see what's going to happen and know what's going to happen in the future anyway, he simply chose the ones that were going to, he knew were going to believe. Oh, look at that. 1979, Joe is going to finally wake up out of his stupor and believe in me. Okay, I'll choose him. Or John is going to in 1974, whenever you believed. The point is, so that's a legitimate position. Again, it's not an essential. My only question is, if I have you over to my house and I say, let's watch the Wizard of Oz movie. And you say, oh, I'm, I've never seen it. I don't know anything about it. And I turn it on and we start watching and you're enthralled with the movie. And I pause it in the first 10 minutes and I go, see, that's the Wicked Witch of the West. She's going to die. A house is going to fall on her. Because I predicted that, because I knew the future, did I make it happen or just um, kind of submissively let it happen or, or just talk about it, but I had nothing to do with it? My point is this. What we see in the Bible is God predestining people actively, not passively. That's the word I was looking for. What do you mean by that? He causes people to be saved. Is that really a choice? Did I choose for that to happen? In other words, if I hadn't said a word, would the wicked witch have still died? Yes. A better analogy is we watched the Super Bowl on videotape, Tampa Bay last year. I watch it with you. You haven't seen the game. And I say, I'm choosing Tampa Bay is going to win. Is that why they're winning? Or would they have won anyway? They would have won anyway. So is that really a choice? The bottom line is, it's possible that this is another paradox, that like a lot of other things in the Bible, a paradox is two things that appear to be parallel lines that never intersect. They can't both be true, but they are. Who wrote the Bible? Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah, the name on each, Moses wrote the first five books, John wrote the Gospel of John. Is that true? It is. And yet the Holy Spirit wrote every book. Well, which is it? Both. It's a paradox. Who is Jesus? Fully God. Okay, I got it. And fully man. Which is it? Both. Do you see what I mean? How many gods are there? One. Okay, I got it. Revealed in three persons. Oh, now you're giving me a headache, right? The Bible is full of paradoxes. Is it possible that one of the paradoxes is God chose you before the foundation of the world, and yet you are personally responsible for not only receiving that gift, but believing it's possible. Again, not an essential. Um, but what I see is not only the beauty of this um, doctrine, but the security in it. If it was up to me, I would mess it up and I would have lost my salvation four times a month for the last 35 years. Not so right? Noah could fall, slip and fall on that boat, but he could never fall overboard because God closed the door and there was only one door. Remember all that? He can slip and fall like you and I do when we sin, but he could never fall overboard. Last thing, if it's true that God chose me and like Lazarus, Joe, come forth and I suddenly, it's suddenly the Bible started to make sense to me and I started to believe. If that's the way it went down, 
then there's no bragging for me that I was more spiritual, smarter, more in tune with God and just God. He saved me. So there's no bragging. It's very, it's a very humble thing, but it's a thing that makes you so grateful. You want to please that God that did all this, right? That's how I see it anyway. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, deathbed confessions, if they're sincere, um, God can save anybody. By the way, if somebody doesn't believe their whole life and four minutes before they death, they receive Jesus and it's sincere, they're just as saved as if you were saved when you were four years old and lived 90 years, just as saved, right? The thief on the cross is a good example, right? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We're getting what we deserve. This man's done nothing wrong. What theology from a guy bleeding out on a cross? What does Jesus tell him? It's the only person Jesus tells this to. This day, you'll be with me in paradise. Translation, you're saved. You're going. I chose you before the foundation of the world. Well, it doesn't seem fair. He didn't have to go through church and all the sermons I've heard and this boring Bible study. And he's saved. God is God, right? Um, okay. Um, the other part of chapter six is a lot about eating the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Notice that it's not nibbling or tasting, eating, taking it in fully so it becomes part of you. You are what you eat so that you're, once you do that, God begins to change you from the inside out, a renewed mind, your desires change, your passions change. It becomes a lot easier for you to resist the sins that used to enslave you. Speaking of enslavery, um, the book of Romans calls us unbelievers, listen, slaves to sin. A slave can't free himself. Jesus has to free the slave, right? He pays the ransom, the price. We already talked about that and that. Let's talk about an even happier subject, Judas. Um, Peter says in chapter uh, 6, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He gets an A plus here. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, verse 70, have I not chosen you, the 12? And one of you is a what? Wow, a devil. And I'm sure they all looked around at each other and went, who does he mean? Right? Let's talk a little bit about Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is the prototype for the counterfeit believer, the faker. Judas is such a good faker that in the last supper, in the moments there, before he leaves the room, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you will, what? Betray me. Remember that? And they all say, is it me? No one says, I bet it's him, because they thought he was as holy as the others. Okay, Judas. Um, we know from other portion of scriptures that Judas was a thief. John 12, 6 says he had control of the money bag and he used to steal from it. Um, we know that Satan entered into him at the Last Supper when Jesus says, yes, it's you. Because Judas said it like everybody else. Is it me? Jesus says, yes. 
do what you're going to do, do quickly. Satan enters him. Satan can't enter a believer because the Holy Spirit lives there. Um, Mark 14 talks about Judas. Listen, this is really interesting. Being absolutely responsible for his actions. And yet, it was foreordained before the foundation of the world that he would be the one. Um, that is, gosh, where is it? Um, prophesied is what I have it in the notes. Uh, oh, Psalm 41, 9, that a close friend's going to betray him. Zechariah 11, 12 to 13 says the Messiah is going to be betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver, which will be thrown in the temple and used to buy a potter's field. Pretty specific, right? Pretty amazing. Satan entered Judas. Um, John 17 says the only one that was lost was the one doomed to, destined for destruction. Judas. Judas hangs himself. Some have said maybe he was saved. Satan entered into him. He was certainly remorseful, but I don't think Judas was saved, and here's why. Peter also denied Christ. Peter is an example of a person like you that is saved and we sin. What does Peter do? Well, he abandons Jesus forever. No, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of Peter and says, go back. And he swims to Jesus on the shore. Do you remember? He had denied him three times. And Jesus says three times, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Remember all that? Tend my lambs. Peter is an example of a believer. Sins, ask for repentance. Judas, unbeliever. Satan is the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren. He so um, gave guilt and shame to, P to Judas that Judas hung himself. Um, but imagine all that Judas heard and saw, the miracles, the sermons, living with Jesus the better part of three years. And yet, he was never saved. Well, maybe if he had just seen a few more miracles, wrong. It's not the miracles, right? God calls. Judas is the prototype for the spiritual defector, the faker, the counterfeit. Um, let's see. Let's move on to chapter seven before more of you write me emails and hate mail. Chapter seven is going to be... Um, uh, one of the most interesting chapters, I think. More reactions about Jesus, but what's coming is more and more um, opposition to Jesus from the religious leaders. They want him dead. But we're going to meet in chapter seven in a second, Jesus's half-brothers. Kind of an interesting situation. Those of you that had a, a, an older brother, can you imagine growing up with your older brother and he always did everything right. And you didn't. Okay. I would imagine he got straight A's, right? He would have to be incredibly smart. I would imagine when you were getting in trouble, that Mary had to resist the temptation to say, why can't you be more like Jesus, your older brother? What's your point, Joe? There might be a little resentment against Mr. Perfect, right? Anyway, let's dive in. Chapter 7, verse 1. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Well, that was a good one. 
After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life, waiting to kill him. That is not fear. What you're going to see in the verses that follow here is that is Jesus living his whole life moment by moment on God's timeline, not his own. It is not fear because eventually he is unafraid when he preaches. You'll see later in this chapter. It's a timeline thing. He, he cannot get killed too early or too late. You say, why does that even matter? Why couldn't he just come to earth, die for the sins of the world? Number one, grace. He's healing all these people, doing incredible miracles, blessing people all over the place wherever he goes. He's preaching about himself. He's letting people get to know him. God revealed in human flesh. But the timing is unbelievably important. If, the, if you were here for the study on Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, don't make me go into it now. It would take me half an hour. Daniel chapter 9 gives you to the day when Jesus is going to reveal himself as the Messiah. And it turns out to be um, on Palm Sunday when he rides into town on a donkey. That's the day it had to be. Not a day before, not a day later. That's why it's all being orchestrated by God, because it was predicted in the Old Testament. He also has to die on a specific day. Did you know that? He dies on the right, as the Passover lambs Friday are being slaughtered not far away. He's being crucified because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It has to be that day. There's nothing random about his life. May I say, there's nothing random about yours either. Every single thing that happens to you happens for a reason. Question is, what's the reason? When something bad happens to me, do you do this? I always ask, not Chris Christopherson, why me, Lord? Like I didn't deserve it. I, I know I deserve it. I always ask, what do you want me to learn from this? Right? I want to learn every single thing I can learn from this weakness, this sickness, this injury, this bummer in my life, whatever it may be. Um, verse one. So he stays uh, in Galilee. Galilee is north. Galilee is country, the hick country. Judea is where Jerusalem is, the big city bustling with all the festivals and a bunch of people. He's staying in Galilee because it's not his time yet. Verse two. But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, um, Jesus' brothers are going to have a little talk with him. But let's, let's stop. What's the Feast of Tabernacles? There's seven Jewish feasts. Three were mandatory. If you're a Jewish male, you make your way there. If you're able-bodied and you can. He's got to go to this feast because he's keeping the whole law, and that's part of the law. What's the Feast of Tabernacles? The Feast of Tabernacles was the favorite feast, not Passover. Feast of Tabernacles was the favorite, the most popular feast for the Jews. It was the most joyous one. It was fun. The Jews celebrated this feast to commemorate and remember when Jesus, when God, sorry, came through when they were wandering in the wilderness with water, food, all of that. And, and at that time, right before they got into the promised land, they were dwelling in little tabernacles, little booths made out of sticks and branches and leaves and temporary dwellings. If you will, 
It's the country of Israel camping out. That's what it is. It's a big camp out. And it's totally fun. Even so, if you came into town with your wife or your kids, you'd get that tent together and you'd camp out, have a little barbecue. If you lived in, even if you lived in Jerusalem, you'd go outside in your yard and live for a week in one of those tents to remember God provided when we had to live like this. That's what it was. It also had a lot to do with water, and we'll, we'll cover that later. Uh, let's see. It was a week-long celebration. Um, it's exactly six months before or after Passover. So Jesus is going to die in six months. He's got to go to this festival. It's also a fall festival, which is a grape uh, and olive harvest celebration that God has again provided rain, crops, all of that. Um, okay, so here come Jesus's half-brothers. Verse 3, Jesus's brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one wants to become a public figure who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. That's the first, that's their part of the conversation. Okay. Okay. Sometimes if I read you a quote and I don't tell you the context, you might say, well, what, what did the person mean by that? So if I only read you verses three and four, you know, they're saying basically in verse three, his brothers are saying to him, you should leave here, which is a hick town, go to the big leagues. If you're Mr. Messiah, if you really do these miracles, notice the word if. Uh, NIV has since in the middle of verse four, and it really has the sense of if. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. You want to be an actor? and you're here in course gold, you need to go to Hollywood. You want to be in the big leagues. You need to go try out for a baseball team. Go to the big leagues. Go. So some people have said, well, maybe they're, you know, encouraging him to hoping his ministry takes off. Or do they not like him for the reasons I mentioned earlier and others, right? Because when you're around someone that's that good, makes you feel dirty. Do you know what I mean? Sinful. I know because I went to church a few times, but when I was still doing things I shouldn't be doing, and you just feel like, wow, look at these holy people. What am I doing here? None of you would be that way because you were holy always, but me, it was different. So, but we know the context is not encouraging. They're not, we're behind you, Jesus. You go, dude. There are scholars that think they're doing this and their motive is get rid of him. Their motive is, these are long shots, but I'll throw it out there. Motive number one, you know, if he is the Messiah, we're his brothers. This could be good for us. If he becomes king and stuff, there might be cabinet posts for us. Go. I don't think that's it, but there's scholars that think that. There are scholars that think they don't like him so much that it's like Joseph and his brothers in the, in the book of Genesis, where they're trying to get rid of him. Remember, they sold him into slavery because they know the rumor is the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. Hey, big brother, 
you should go to Jerusalem. Go, dude. Yeah. Show them your stuff if you're really doing these magic tricks. So you ought to leave here and go to Judea, verse 3, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Don't be hiding out here in Galilee. No one wants to be, who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, or if you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. What are they assuming? Well, he's, he obviously wants the biggest following he can get, the biggest numbers, the biggest stadium. Does he? Not necessarily. He wants real disciples. They are saying, go do more miracles and more people will believe in you. Jesus knows, hey, the miracles don't do much of anything. I fed 25,000 people. Then I told them I'm the bread of life. And most of them in the end of chapter six, remember, split. Chapter six, verse 66, kind of a weird thing. Um, we mentioned that last week. Um, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Show yourself to the Gentiles, to everybody. What's ironic is Jesus Christ is the most central figure in human history. Time magazine chose him as such in the 19, late 60s, I think, or early 70s. No human being has affected more other people than that one man. Why are you mentioning that? because he didn't travel. He only traveled in a very small part of Israel and part of Samaria. That's it. Never went to Rome, didn't go to Paris, didn't go to the far East. And yet his disciples did, and they did show him to the world, but he didn't need to, right? Because he's Jesus Christ. And he knew I'm going to empower these people who will tell those people all, and they'll all have the Holy Spirit once they believe and the word will spread. And it has. Christianity, largest religion in the world, Bible, best-selling book in the world. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Had they seen the miracles? Surely. Did they know he was something unusual? Absolutely. Did Mary tell them, by the way, your older brother, virgin birth, angel talk to me, God? I don't think so. What would that do? It would make the division even greater between the brothers and him. We know there are four brothers and there are sisters, but they're not named. So we don't know how many or who they uh, were, but they are James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude or Judas. James and Jude wrote the, their books that bear their name, the book of James, the book of Jude. Um, James, his brother, Notice they don't believe in him here. James ends up being the pastor of the church in Jerusalem because Jesus appears to him as one of the people in the resurrection, and he must convince his brothers. Um, let's see. Jesus's mother and brothers, I'm going to show you, even his mother, yes, don't believe in him at this point. I'll show you in a second. However, in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples are together praying, guess who's with them? His brothers, his mom, probably the sisters too. Keep your finger here, and I want you to go to Mark chapter 3. So from John, take a left, go through Luke, and you come to Mark and go to chapter 3. I want you to see a couple amazing things here. Mark chapter 3. I'll give you a second to turn there. 
Um, let's see. The first place we want to go is verse 21. Well, verse 20, Jesus entered a house and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat so big a crowd. When his family heard about this, that's his own. They went to take, take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind, he's beside himself. He's flipped his lid, it's crazy. Wow. Now Mary knows the truth, right? Joseph is clearly dies very early. You don't hear of him again after when Jesus was a little boy, 12 years old. But Mary knew, and yet it's hard to believe. Familiarity doesn't necessarily breed faith. In fact, it can often be the opposite, right? A prophet is not within, without honor except in his own town. People, oh, we know this guy. You're going to see that in chapter seven, by the way. So, um, there's a Catholic doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary was a virgin her whole life, period. Had Jesus, that was it. Nice story, not true. He's got half-brothers. Um, let's see, where is that? Oh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 25 says that Joseph kept her as a, as a virgin until the baby was born. They have other kids together, half-brothers of Jesus, same mother, different father. Their father's Joseph, his father's God, right? But can you imagine having Jesus as your brother? I'm sure he's a sweetheart of a guy, but he's so perfect, you just want to strangle him maybe. I don't know. I, I don't know. Perhaps there's jealousy as there was in the Joseph story as well. Can Mary be fair with him and the other brothers who are imperfect? I don't know. But clearly, something's going on here. The, even his own brothers do not believe in him. So they've made a suggestion. Don't you love that? God is there in human flesh, and men are telling God, you know what you ought to do? We've had a little meeting, and we want to advise you. But you know what? We all do that, don't we? When you pray, do you ever tell God, here's what would be the best thing? Here's what you should do? What's the central phrase in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done. You know so much more than me. Whatever your will is in this situation, go for it. It's going to be the best thing. They're advising him. What are they advising him to do? Go up to Jerusalem publicly, make a big spectacle, do the miracles, get the following. Now, watch what happens. Verse six, therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not going. I go not to this feast. I am not yet going to this feast. Yet is implied. Because for me, the right time has not yet come. You see the word time, time, time. He's on a timetable. He could go up there with guns blazing and all kinds of miracles and riding on a donkey and he'd get crucified six months too early. And God, the father would go, that wasn't what I told you to do. And he obeys the father fully. So he doesn't take the advice of these guys. In fact, he repels it. He tells them the time's not right for me, but for you guys, any time is right. 
I'm going to show you why any time is right for them, because they are of the world. They're unbelievers. So any time is right. You go whenever you want. It's not the right time for me. That's what he's saying. Verse seven, the world can hate you, cannot hate you, sorry, but it hates me because I testify what it does is evil. Jesus pulls no punches. He calls evil, evil, and the world hates that. The world in the gospel of John is a symbolic word for the unsaved humanity. It doesn't mean the universe. Um, so there's a hint in verse seven. Did you see it? The world can't hate you. Why can't the world hate them? Because they're of the world. They agree with the world's assessment of him, and they don't believe. The world doesn't believe. They're sinners. He, it says, he says, it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. That implies, implies at least, that he has called them out on their sin, right? He testifies. Why would
Find your seats back there. We think we have it fixed. Um, yeah. All right. We are back. I think anyway. So sorry. I don't know what happened. Internet died in this building and then came back up. Um, can you still see me and hear me wave? Yes. Okay. Great. Uh, yeah, I think we're good. Okay. We're back in John chapter seven, talking to Jesus's brothers. He's saying the right time for me hasn't come in verse six to go to this feast. You go up. What I started to say was that families would go as a caravan, a bunch of people traveling together. It was safer that way. It was part of the festivities, but sometimes whole villages would go together. Um, and they're suggesting come with us and go as part of the village caravan. And he uh, is rebuffing them saying, no, I can't do that. The world can't hate you, but it hates me. You go to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. It's not the right time for me. It hasn't yet come. Verse eight. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. They left, the caravan left, and he went. He's going to go up secretly. From the Gospel of Luke, we learned that he went a whole different route through Samaria, which Jews didn't usually do. They avoided Samaria, the Samaritans, that whole hatred thing. He's going up incognito with a little hoodie on and sunglasses. I'm kidding. But he's not looking for the big publicity is the point. I'm joking about that first part. Um, notice that the brothers not only don't believe, but they want... Um, human glory okay whether it's for themselves or for him do the miracles get the glory okay he's acting now as the perfect human being who wants to give all the glory to god his father who sent him i'm going to show you that in a second um by the way they're saying promote yourself satan tempted jesus in matthew 4 in a similar way he tells him Turn the stones to bread, remember that, to help yourself. Throw yourself off the top of the temple, and that'll prove that you're God. You're testing God kind of thing. Good, that's still on. Now I'm looking at the internet connection every two seconds. Um, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It's glory for you, but Satan's way. And Satan says, Jesus says no to his brothers and to Satan. If you really have power, go to the big leagues. Maybe they're embarrassed by him. Maybe they want mom and mom to themselves to get rid of him. We're not sure. But they give him advice and he doesn't take it. Psalm 69, this is prophesied. Listen, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's children. Jesus speaks of divided families. Do you remember that? Where brother will hand over brother and father will hand over son and mother will hand over daughter and everyone will be hate. You'll be hated by all people. He's saying the reason the world hates him is that he's righteous. They're not righteous. So they're not saved yet, but they will be. We'll see that. Um, so uh, his time hasn't come. That's the triumphal entry and the cross. We talked about that. I'm just looking at notes here. Um, he's saying, go without me. I'm not going publicly, but he is going to go with no fanfare, no caravan. He doesn't want un unwelcome publicity, but he had to attend the festival to keep the law. We already said that. Um, let's see. We already talked about that. Yeah, we didn't talk about all of that. I just noticed, gosh, hmm. 
Well, you know what? Maybe we'll do that another time. Come back next week and we'll talk more about free will from half an hour ago. You guys need to get a new teacher here. Okay. Um, so uh, <laughs> booing from the peanut gallery there. The, what are the brothers doing? They're judging by appearances. Get the big following, right? They're not judging with righteous judgment. I'll show you that in a second in this chapter. They don't see the real Jesus. They don't know the real Jesus. They think they know him. They don't. That's going to come back in this chapter as well. Uh, let's see. All right, let's keep rolling. Verse 9. No, verse 10. However, after his brothers left for the feast, he went also, not, in, not publicly, but in secret. Verse 11. Now, meanwhile, at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering, or really the Greek word is grumbling about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything public, publicly about him for fear of the Jews. The rumor was spreading. The Jewish leaders want to kill this guy. So you don't want to be seen as one of his followers. So it's kind of hush-hush. Look at these verses again. At the feast, everybody's looking for him, right? Um, because they've heard about the miracles. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, which has, by the way, Messiah, Messianic significance for the Jews. Could this be when he reveals himself? So look at the opinions. Where is he? Widespread grumbling about him. Here's the two opinions. Well, there's three, really. One Opinion number one, some said, he's a good man. Some said, no, he deceives the people. By the way, the punishment in the Old Testament for deceiving the people religiously is stoning. Jews, they took it seriously. If you're spreading false doctrine in Judaism, they kill you if it doesn't go along with the Old Testament. So that charge, he's deceiving the people, is way heavier than it looks to you and I in a Western world in America and uh, in 2021. To accuse him of deceiving the people is a capital offense. So they're wrong because he's not deceiving the people, right? But you know who else is wrong? The first group. Look again. Some said he's a good man. Wrong. I mean, he is, but to say that's all he is, is to miss the whole point of who he is, right? If you meet somebody and you tell them about Jesus and they say, I believe Jesus is a good man, I would correct that and say, he's so much more than that. He's the creator, the sustainer of the universe. He's the Messiah, the son of God, fully God in human body. That's why he could do all those miracles. Good man, they're both wrong. Now, it's certainly they're closer saying he's a good man, but they're both wrong, aren't they? Then there's the third opinion. Nobody would say anything publicly for fear of the Jews. You know what that is? Peer pressure. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. That is, folks, what keeps you and I quiet about Jesus among our friends and people at this grocery store and at work and our neighbors and peer pressure. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want anybody to think I'm a Jesus freak, and I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable and cast the seeds, spread the word. You have the truth. 
those people that are unbelievers in your life, if they don't hear it from you, they might not hear it from anybody else. Have you ever heard the saying, this is not scriptural, but it makes sense to me, that you don't want at the end of time, an unbelieving friend who's on his way to hell say to you, why didn't you tell me? You knew this was my destiny. You knew my house was on fire. You didn't say anything. You didn't want to offend me. It would have been better if you offended me. Now, who knows? They might not have believed. Who knows? We don't know who's chosen and who's not. So we spread the gospel to everybody. And some people kick you out of their house. And some people go, you know what? I've been feeling like I need to get into the Bible more. And tell me more about this. You never know. But his brothers don't believe. The crowd up there, some think he's good, some think he deceives the people. But nobody wants to talk about him in public because they're afraid of the Jewish. When you see the Jews, that means the Jewish leaders. Verse 14, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So he goes right to the temple. Is he afraid of the Jews? He wouldn't go there if that's where he was afraid, if he was afraid of them. He goes right to the temple courts, the outer courts. It could be the court of the treasury, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women. But he's going to the outer court where there's outdoors and there's a lot of space and he can preach with a loud voice. And that's what he's going to do. So there he goes and he begins to teach. Verse 15, the Jews were amazed. Why are they amazed? And they asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Literally in the Greek, it reads without knowing letters. Now, that doesn't mean he was illiterate or most Jewish males were illiterate. Most Jewish males were illiterate. The women weren't usually taught that stuff. Some were very few. It was a man's thing to learn the scriptures. So they are saying basically he didn't go to the rabbi schools. He didn't get his degree from seminary. He didn't go to Bible college. He wasn't taught like the apostle Paul was by Gamaliel, this legendary Jewish expert. And yet, how does he have all this knowledge? May I say, this is a miracle. You say, really? I didn't see it. It's a miracle that without that schooling, he knows the Old Testament better than all of them because he wrote it, because he's God, right? It's no sweat for him to teach this way. So they're amazed. That should have been a bell ringer for them. Hello, listen to the teaching. Are any of these rabbis teaching this much wisdom? It's part of the evidence that he's God in human flesh. How did this man get this learning without having studied? Whenever there's a question in the Bible, I always like to answer it. The answer to that question is, well, he had that knowledge for the last trillion years plus because he's God in a man's body, right? Duh. <laughs> Jesus could have said that. Oh, you want to know how I know all this? Look, I'm God, okay? I wrote the book, folks. Does he say that? This is a golden opportunity and he, at temptation, and he doesn't take it. What do you mean? How did this man get such wisdom, such learning, without having studied in our colleges? He could have taken all the glory for himself. Listen, in the, court, the outer courts, rabbis would regularly set up 
little areas and that Rabbi Jeff is going to preach over there and Rabbi Bob is going to preach over there and Rabbi Joe back there is going to preach over here and Rabbi Rex is going to preach over here. He's shaking his head no. And, and they'd have their little following that would come and listen or maybe a bigger following. The rabbis, to give more credence to what they're saying as being truth, listen to this, would quote other rabbis. Now, the rabbi so-and-so from 150 years ago, he said about this passage, and rabbi so-and-so said they were always giving that, you know, sort of writer's credit, right? This is a golden opportunity, almost a temptation for him to say, yeah, it's all, it's just me. Watch whose glory he's interested in. So they want to know, how did you get this learning? Verse 16. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. You want to know why I have all this knowledge? It's from God the Father. He's being a human being here completely and saying it's all God's. It ties in perfectly with the Old Testament. That's why it makes so much sense to you people. And He's giving the glory to God. What did the brothers want him to do? Go get the glory, do the miracles, get the spotlights on you. He wants to shine the spotlight on his father. The Bible indicates that for Christians, that is job one. There are many jobs that's job one. What is? Bring glory to God your father by your conduct, by your giving, by your love, by your forgiveness of others, by your grace and mercy that you show, by your holy life that you live. When people compliment you, don't say, thanks, I'm a pretty holy dude or gal. Say, it's all a God thing. Have you ever bought something in a store and it's $4, yeah, what's $4 now, but it's $4, then you give the person a five, okay, and they count your change out like this, and that's five, 10, 20, and you're thinking, I just made $15, but you say, oh, no, it's a mistake, I, I only gave you five. Oh, thank you for being so honest, correct response, it's a God thing. Left to myself, I'd take the 15 bucks and I'd be out of here before you could see me, see the doors close. But it's a God thing. I have to be, give the glory to God always. That's our job, one of them anyway. He doesn't take the bait. My teaching's not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Now, verse 17 is really a strange one. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Because that's the question. Are you speaking on your own or is this really God's teaching? How can I know? He says the way to know is if you're willing to do God's will, if you're willing to choose God's will, you'll know. You say, what? At least I did all week. Verse 17. Hmm. Let me read another place. Okay, what's going on here? If you're choosing to do God's will, do you know what you're not choosing to do? Your will, which is the default position for humanity. I want my will. We are born bent toward being selfish, bent toward get what I deserve, right? 
We look out for number one. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. How many sayings are there like that? Look out for number one. Jesus says here that if you are willing to choose God's will, carte blanche. What do you mean by that? I mean this. Choose. Are you willing to choose God's will? Listen, whatever it is. Well, no, wait, wait, wait. I want to hear what it is first for my life. Listen, have you ever gone shopping for clothes? I, I'm a man. I hate shopping for clothes. I hate it. Women, some women anyway, like it. I don't like it. I go in there and it, it used to be, now there's no customer service, but it used to be, hello, sir, may I help you find something? And I would always say, no, thanks, right? In my head, I'm thinking, I know what I'm looking for. I'll know it when I see it. So leave me alone. I didn't say that, but right. I know what I'm looking for. That plaid shirt with the green collar. There's no way. Okay. I'm moving on. I know what I'm looking for because it's my will. God knows what's best. It's almost like saying, I'll wait in the car. God, you go in there and get me whatever clothes you want, but it's more than clothes, isn't it? It's whatever job you want me to do, whatever wife you want me to have, whatever things you want me to do. Do you want me to go to that lady's house and visit with her who's sick? What do you want me to do? Whatever it is, carte blanche, I'm willing to do it. Now look at the verse again. If anyone chooses to do God's will, again, what's the central phrase in the Lord's prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. There's no, as long as it agrees with what I want. Most of our prayers are us petitioning God. Here's what I really want you to do, right? As if, like the brothers, we know best. It's okay to ask him for things, right? Paul asked, Ken and I were talking about this before Bible study, three times in 2 Corinthians 12, I got this thorn in my flesh. We don't know what it was. Malaria, eye problems, epilepsy, I forgot, is another one. Um, that people think about, like partial blindness. Please take this thorn in the flesh from me. He asked God three times, and three times God says, no. You're, I like you just the way you are. My strength is perfected in your weakness. Keeps you humble. That's right where I want you. Now, did Paul go, sorry, I don't agree. Paul went, I glory in my weaknesses right after that. Awesome. If you're willing to choose God's will and look humbly, there's a lot of humility here, a lot of putting aside our own egos. And he's saying, is my teaching from God or not? If you're willing to humble yourself and just let God show you his will, what's God's will here? For these people to believe in his son that have come, right? But they've got their egos and their pride and their, he has no learning. You know, he doesn't have a degree. He didn't go to Bible college either. I know. Yeah. I don't know about this guy. If they would just let go of those egos and that pride and just listen, they'd hear the godly wisdom and accept it, right? God, your God, whoever he is, can he challenge you? Can he disagree with you? Or did you create him to be the guy that goes, no matter what you do? Good job, Joe. Not always. Sometimes God goes wrong. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out. He'll know whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. 
Now he's going to talk more. He who speaks, verse 18, on his own, does so to gain honor for himself. That's what his brothers told him to do. Gain honor for yourself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. That's him. He's the man of truth who works. He's doing what he's doing to bring glory to his father in heaven. Um, let's see. Is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. It's a hint that he's sinless, right? And if his brothers are in the audience, they're going, oh, here he goes again. But he's right, right? Pretty astounding that he says this. Um, let's see. Your will is what you want. And saying to God, I want what you want, even over what I want, is a huge breakthrough for a believer. To be able to say, I want your desires, your passions. Where do I learn those things? In the Bible. The more you study, the more you know what God wants. Christianity is saying yes to God, even when it means saying no to yourself. That's the hard one. I know what I want. You ever get ahead of God? I want this, follow me, and I'll go get it with your help. You're with me, aren't you? I meant to mention earlier, notice that God's timing is as important as his will. His will has the structure of what he wants for you and also even the timing. Sometimes we rush things ahead of God's timing or we lag behind, behind God's timing. Submission is the key in Christianity. Um, so that when you do that, your desires are what God wants. God's passion becomes your passions. God's preferences, your preferences. You're in sync with God's will and you hear the word of God and you believe it. Some of you have heard this predestination, God chose, and you're like, ah. all I can say is, there it is. I didn't write the Bible. Don't write your letters to me. John, Peter, Paul, Old Testament, Isaiah, it's in there. I don't understand it, but I believe it. Um, let's keep reading. Uh, we already talked about that. So the, he's talking about the person who speaks on his own to gain honor for himself, but he's not doing that. He's working for the honor of God, the one who sent him. He's, he's talking about himself is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Now, what are they glorying in? Who's they? The Jews. We're the Jews. We keep the law. Okay. That's the whole engine of Judaism is we have God's law and we keep it. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law, meaning obeys it totally, meaning never sins. Not one of you ties in with John uh, Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Didn't Moses give you the law? Yes. Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Sounds like a non comes out of nowhere, non sequitur. Why are you trying to kill me? Look at the answer. You are demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? You're out of your mind. There's sort of a correlation between being demon possessed and being have mental illness, they thought. Okay. So the average person doesn't know that the Jewish leaders are trying to kill him, but he's right because he knows supernaturally. Um, 
his point is, who's keeping the law here? You people are so proud about keeping the law and you religious leaders, you're breaking that one, you know, that little tiny little commandment about don't do any murder. Remember all that? Don't covet what your brother has. And he's got all this following behind him. You could go through every commandment, honor the Lord, you know, have no other gods before you. He's showing them you're not keeping the law. Your glory is keeping the law and it's, there's no glory there. I'm glorifying my father. That's what he's saying. Who's trying to kill you? Now he gets to the heart of the problem. Remember chapter five? Chapter five was where Jesus shows up to the pool of Siloam. Okay. And at the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, there are all kinds of paralyzed people, sick people, blind people, deaf people, on death's door people who believe the superstition that if you're the first one in, when an angel stirs the water, you get healed. Remember that? And Jesus picks a guy that's been sick 38 years, paralyzed, and says, do you want to get well? And the guy says, yes, but I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. Remember, thinking just horizontally, not vertically, God. And Jesus says, take up your pallet and walk. Remember, and he heals him. 38 years, he makes that guy whole again. And it's a weird story because the guy doesn't believe. You remember that? He goes and reports him and kind of sides with the Jewish leaders. But the point is he makes a human being whole again. What's the problem with that, Joe? Nothing except it's on the Sabbath. Oh, you can't do any work on the Sabbath. Okay. He's talking about Moses' law, the Old Testament, 10 commandments and all the laws that go with them. Why are you trying to kill me? Verse 21, I did one miracle, Jesus said to them, and you're all astonished. The one miracle is the one I just mentioned. I'll show you why in a second. I did one miracle and you're all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, Abraham is where circumcision came from, not Moses. You circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Okay, background history. What's circumcision? Circumcision is the cutting away of the flesh on the, a baby on the eighth day. Uh, on the male reproductive organ. Don't make me draw you a picture. You know what I'm talking about. On the eighth day. But what happens? Wait a minute. Circumcision is work. What if the eighth day works out to be the Sabbath? Do you do it on the ninth day or the seventh day? No, they did it on the eighth day anyway. What? It's work though. It's an exception because it's a Jewish rite. It symbolizes the cutting away of the fleshy nature it corresponds to baptism for Christians, in a sense. But circumcision, obviously, was only for, for men. Baptism is for men and women, obviously. Okay. So hasn't Moses given you the law? None of you tries to keep, none of you keeps it. I did one miracle. You're all astonished. Verse 22. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, and he reminds them it wasn't really Moses. It's Abraham, the first one. You, you still circumcise a child, even if it's on the Sabbath. Now, verse 23, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath, from the lesser to the greater? If you can circumcise somebody, which is cutting and bleeding and it hurts the baby and the baby cries, probably, I don't remember mine, but I bet I cried. Why can't, why are you all upset that I healed somebody on the Sabbath, which is a, the whole person, 
kind of thing. That's the argument. 24 is the key verse. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a righteous judgment. Go back to the brothers at the beginning of the chapter. What were they doing? Judging by mere appearances. We don't like Jesus, Mr. Holier than thou, although I think he was beautiful and loving about it, but he was perfect. Let's face it. Never sinned. They're judging by mere appearances. Go get a big following. Go to the big leagues. Make a righteous judgment. Their will was separate from God's will. They were not believers. It says so in verse, I think it was five. Yeah, verse five. So um, the bottom line here is Jesus is showing them, none of you keeps the law. If they understood how truthful he was, that should have, the lights should have gone on in their heads. Listen, wait a minute. If we don't keep the law, then we're not saved. And if we can't keep the law, then we'll never be saved. We'll never go to heaven. We need a, say it with me, class, Messiah, right? And he's saying, hello, here I am, right? He's showing them they need a Messiah. They don't keep the uh, law. If our will doesn't change to where we agree with God, I'm going to accept your will in the Bible, accept all of it, not smorgasbord it. That means I'll take that part, but no, chapter four is out. And I don't like this chapter because it kind of pinches Accept the whole thing. Have no will, no ego about it. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. You ever heard that? Sounds narrow-minded. It's really true. Unless we do that, we will either hate Jesus like his brothers or misunderstand him like the religious leaders and uh, or, or even the people that admire him for all the wrong reasons. We love the free bread. We love the miracles. Cool it on the your God stuff and you're the bread of life stuff. We'll misunderstand. It's all um, our perspective based on, are we willing to take God's will over our own? Um, the central expression of God's will in Judaism is the law. That's where he told him, this is what I want. He's telling him, you're not keeping God's law. So, uh, and the evidence he's going to give is they want to kill him. And they're angry that he healed a guy. Why would you be angry with that? Because they think the Sabbath law is more important than healing somebody. Uh, we already talked about that. Human beings exist for the glory of God. That's why we're here, to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. Um, if you're a servant of self-exaltation, where it's all about getting the glory for yourself, then there will be no room on your throne for a Messiah or God himself. You're willing to have God as an advisor. When I ring the bell, you come running God and do what I ask, right? Uh, they make demands of him kind of thing. Um, but if you love God's glory and him getting the glory and his will, then you'll love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your paralyzed neighbor as yourself right? You'll rejoice that the guy was healed instead of coming down on Jesus for that. Almost out of time. Um, let's keep rolling, shall we? Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that was good. Not as loud as the first one, but it was good. At verse 25, 
at some at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? In other words, they're, why isn't anybody picking him up? It's like a fugitive where there's wanted posters on every corner with a guy's face, and there he is, and he's tap dancing in the street. He's talking. Nobody's picking him up. Why is that? Have the authorities concluded that he's the Christ? Verse 27. This is ironic. But we know where this man is from. Do they? Where is he from? Don't say Bethlehem, although that's true. He's from heaven. He's about to say he's from God, as if that's a place as well as a person. But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. There was a tradition um, that the Messiah would, would show up suddenly, and no one would know where he was from. Wait, do these people know their Old Testament? No. Why do you say that? Because the Old Testament says Bethlehem, right? The Old Testament says born of a virgin. Bethlehem. They think, yeah, he's from Nazareth. He lives in Nazareth, or he did, but he's not from Nazareth. He's from Bethlehem. He fulfills the scripture. They don't know it like they think they do. Last thing, the notes I forgot earlier, free will. What is free will? Well, free will is that, you know, God gives humans the opportunity to make choices. And that's true. You can have the ham sandwich or the tuna or a burger, and you can choose, right? Yes, that's true. But biblically, does that mean that we can do anything we want? And by the way, I'm talking in our unsaved condition, okay? Person's not a believer. Is he free to do whatever he wants? The answer is there's a fence there's a border. Inside the fence, he can do whatever he wants. Okay, well, what, what is that yard? What's the fence? Sin. That's what. Your free will as an unbeliever is, you can choose, I'm going to do that sin, but not that one. I'm going to have pride. I'm going to lie. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to lust. I'm going to steal. I'm going to worship another God, whatever. No, I don't want to do the, the God thing. I'll just do the stealing. It's not as bad of a sin. I'm free to do that. But is an unsaved person free to do whatever he wants? Let me give you an example. You come to a river and there's a huge bridge. You have a choice. I can take the bridge, walk over it. I can stay on this side and not go over it. True? True. You know what you're not free to do? Flap your arms and fly over the bridge. And the, why aren't you free to do that? Because it's outside of your nature. Human beings can't, you can flap all you want and you're just going to be looking like an idiot, right? Like I do right now. There's certain things you can't do because they're outside your nature. In the same way, no one can choose to make himself righteous. No one can choose to come to God. Okay. Free will is limited by nature. Um, listen to this. Ephesians 2, I know I said it earlier, we're, we're spiritually dead when we're unsaved. But here it comes, listen. In Romans 6, it says we're slaves to sin. So he's free to free himself. No, he's free as a slave to disobey the owner and get whipped or obey the owner. 
He is not free to run away or to come to Christ. He's a slave. Slave meant owned by someone else. Listen to this. Romans 8 says that in our natural state, this is seven verses 7 and 8, listen to this, we cannot submit to God or please him. Can't. It's like flying, flapping your wings. Can't do it in our unsaved state. God has to get a hold of us and draw us. We're not spiritually uh, uh, neutral. We're by nature children of wrath. We have to be born again. Um, dead person has no options outside of staying dead, right? The, the border for our free will is our sin. We can sin in a variety of ways, or we can kind of not sin on that day. But, but in terms of jumping the fence and coming to Christ, we're not able to. We're slaves. That's what the Bible says anyway. Um, that's why no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's why. Um, God has to act first. Could Lazarus have come out of the grave on his own? No. Lazarus, come forth. He had to do it with a British accent, for those of you who like that sort of thing. That, he heard that, and then he came. Who did the calling? God. What if Jesus just sat there and went, let's see if he comes out? He'd be sitting there forever, right? Better get a sandwich. It's going to be a while. John 15, verses 4 and 5. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, Jesus says, listen, you can do nothing. You thought I was going to say a little, nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Of any eternal consequence, of anything to please God, those that obeyed the law in the Old Testament, most of them were doing it, Jews, to get God to owe them for their own glory. They weren't doing it for his glory because they weren't saved. There were Old Testament saints that were saved. Like I said, the free will, predestination, God choosing thing, they may both be true and paradoxical. But the main thing is, the more important thing is, not the mechanics of how you and I got saved. The most important thing is, praise God, we are. I exchanged emails with somebody um, who's going through some stuff and questioning and she's not the only one. There's someone else that is that I know questioning. Am I really saved? So I don't feel that saved. Listen, you wouldn't be here. This isn't that interesting. We're not giving away free pizza or anything. We should, but we're not. The point is you have a thirst for God's word, a hunger, and you've eaten the bread of life and you want more. That's why you're here, right? That's why I'm here. It's not, um, trying to earn salvation. It's not because you're so spiritual. If you weren't saved, you'd be home watching the Olympics, right? No? Okay. Some of you are going, um, or something else. Okay. Um, we're out of time. We're going to pray now. We're way out of time, actually. Um, we'll pick it up next time. Thank you for being here. Sorry about the computer glitch there. And uh, thank you all for being here. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this time we could spend feeding on the bread. And we're hungrier and thirstier. We wouldn't be here. And that's a good thing, God. Keep us hungry and thirsty all week, not just Tuesday, not just Sunday, by keeping us reading your word and studying it and praying and living out the faith that you've given us, God. 
all to your glory, not ours. You're so much more than a good man, Lord Jesus. We worship you and bow to you. What you did for us is something we can never repay, but we want to try. We want to do things in gratitude. Submit our wills, God, to yours, carte blanche. Regardless of what your will is, show us that your will is always better for us. May we seek your will over our own and be able to say with Jesus, thy will be done. Make us more like Jesus Christ who lived his whole life to shine the glory on his father. Thank you for these words, God, that you've given us. We pray that each one would learn and grow and we give praise to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here, everybody that's here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's the most important thing. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. See you next Tuesday.